0: This week on New Mexico in Focus, the last absentee ballots are being mailed. We'll see what's ahead for the vote and the count.
1: Our big counties are gonna have a 10 day head start on the counting process and our smaller ones have a five day head start. So we feel good.
0: Plus why thinking about the end of our lives might help us today. New Mexico in Focus starts now. Thanks for joining us this week. I'm your host, Gene Grant. The pandemic has many of us thinking more concretely about death and dying. We'll look at some different ways to plan for the end of our lives. The dust has cleared in Santa Fe's Plaza, but people are still talking about what's ahead for racial division in Santa Fe after the Plaza Obelisk came down. Our line opinion panel gives it another go this week. The group also looks at Operation Legend and skyrocketing COVID-19 case numbers. That's where we'll begin.
2: Welcome New Mexico In Focus Fans. This is the podcast edition for the show on Friday, October 23rd, 2020. I am your host and executive producer here at NMPBS, Kevin McDonald. We appreciate you listening, downloading, and subscribing the podcast, and ask you if you get a chance, leave us a little review. That helps us out a great deal. We are going to, as you heard, have a lot this week about a lot of different topics, but we will kick things off with the line panel this week and the latest on COVID-19. Joining us on the line panel this week is regular Serge Martinez, uh, a professor at the UNM Law School, as well as former state senator Diane Snyder, and we are also joined by a a friend of the show for a long time now, although it's been a while since we've been able to have him back on the show. You'll know him from his radio gig at KKOB Radio AM, and that is TJ Trout. Uh, Gene Grant, our host, uh, goes on TJ's Trout on a TJ show on a fairly regular basis, so does line panelist Merritt Allen. This week we turn the tables, bring him in to talk with us. We're excited to have TJ back. We hope you enjoy him as well. Again, this week, uh, the governor uh, addressed the COVID-19 situation earlier in the week than she normally does. Uh, She had a press conference on Tuesday, and all the indicators are still headed in the wrong direction, uh, in particular the number of cases and the uh, load on our hospitals. And so she announced some changes that actually take place today. We already knew that uh, restaurants uh, were going to be, or have been for a while now, uh, they have to close at 10 o'clock. And now we know that that was expanded to all retail. Uh, That's just part of the changes. The other big one has to do with um, what they call the rapid response, uh, where businesses have a a mini outbreak, so to speak. Uh, First of all, stores and bars and restaurants any business will have to show that they have training on how to handle COVID-19 and then if they have more than four of these rapid response situations in a given time period they will have to close down for at least two weeks. So that's just part of what was announced this week as the governor, Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham, looks to once again turn the tide on the spread of COVID-19 in New Mexico. So right now let's head over to host Jean Grant and the line folks to get their thoughts on these changes and how we continue to fare when it comes to beating back COVID-19.
0: New Mexico is in uncharted waters as the state's COVID case count threatens to swamp the pandemic response and inundate hospitals. The governor, the governor announced new restrictions this week as she tries to keep New Mexico afloat. Here to work through them, the crew of the SS Line Opinion Panel this week. Line regular, UNM law professor Serge Martinez is with us. Diane Snyder, she's a former state senator, also a line regular here on New Mexico in Focus. And we welcome back on board a friend of the show. Haven't had him sail with us in many years, but now he's back in town. It is terrific to have T.J. Trout on again after many years. T.J. is now, of course, the host of his own show on 96.3 KKOB, but also 770, the traditional place on the AM dial. NOW let's, LET'S LOOK AT THE SITUATION SERGE I'LL START WITH YOU NEW MEXICO COULD BE IN REAL TROUBLE HERE IS THE GOVERNOR MOVING QUICKLY ENOUGH BASED ON WHAT YOU'VE SEEN
3: I MEAN THE NUMBERS ARE CHANGING SO RAPIDLY AND IT'S SO HARD FOR ME YOU KNOW TO GET A GET A HANDLE ON THINGS SO IT'S HARD FOR ME TO REALLY OBVIOUSLY YOU KNOW LIKE for, WITH ALL OF US mm-hmm. um, REACT REACT RAPIDLY ENOUGH I THINK IN ANY CASE BUT YOU KNOW I THINK THE THE Governor is in, she's in a, in a bit of a, in a tough position in terms of reacting quickly and then having, you know, the numbers change and whatnot. But I think, you know, trying to dial things back, dial things down and, and see what happens, that is probably the right move in this moment. You know, we've had, we've had our ups and downs and seeing how things respond to the different restrictions is, is, I think, probably sound policy. I think, you know, she continues to stress, to the rest of us, hey, this is you know, just because we have these restrictions doesn't mean you have to go out. But that we you know we're not limiting it doesn't mean you have to go do X, Y, or Z. And I think that is a strong and powerful message that really should be resonating more with New Mexicans. I think it's good to see if that see how much it does, and then if it doesn't, I would expect much more you know stricter um, and rapid responses than we're seeing. Mm-hmm. Senator, you know, closing retail stores at 10 um, o'clock,
0: museums, historical sites shutting down this week, of course. The retail stuff I want to stick with for a second at 10 o'clock. What's your initial reaction to that and how you feel that is a tool to get on top of this COVID?
4: I guess my first thought was, well, that sounds okay. But then I thought, well, who's out there shopping? After ten o'clock at night in Albuquerque, uh, not many. When, yeah. yeah, in Albuquerque, uh, because so many things were were closing earlier at mm-hmm. the beginning, so we kind of got accustomed to that. Um, I wondered about the second thing. I wondered about was does what about companies that like the big box stores or or the, the grocery store? They stock at night. Does that are they excluded from that or are those people? there were just a lot of strange questions that came to my mind about it. Um, I think it's okay to do it, but I just, I don't, I mean, most restaurants and stuff don't stay nowadays, aren't staying open later than that. The, the stores aren't staying. And I guess I'm just not seeing, and maybe somebody could point it out to me. I'm not seeing how that will be really effective and impact, keep that many people from not being exposed So that was kind of my thought about it.
0: Mm -hmm. Hey, TJ, you know, the idea that the governor has that, you know, state procedures, you're going to have to halt operations after an employee tests positive for COVID. That's not new, but, you know, to have four rapid responses within a period of 14 days, they'll now have to close for a full two weeks. That's a difficulty for businesses right off the top. But is that a sufficient enough way to,
5: to beat this back? I ask again. I don't think we even know what a sufficient enough way to beat this back is. Yeah. Um, I'll tell you what: if a, if a business has four, uh, you know, four rapid responses in a row like that, I, I, I think, you know, quite frankly, you got to look at the business, and you got to go, okay, what are you guys doing wrong? Uh, are you not following the rules? What's happening at your business? I mean, what, what, what do you do? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to turn this around onto us, not you, Gene, but, you sure. Know, or anybody on the panel. But I mean, this is this is all on us, man. I mean, I would hate to be the governor of any state right now. I mean, I mean, what what an awesome challenge this is. But 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 the responsibility of all this is in our hands. It's in our it's in our hands what we do. And it, it it's somewhat dismaying to me that um, again politics is playing so much into the science. And This is becoming politicized, and people are taking sides digging in their heels. I mean, just, you know, again, we know what we need to do to knock this down. We're just not doing it. Mm -hmm. Wear the damn masks. You know, stay away from people. Wash your hands. I mean, it's been said to us over and over and over again. I just don't understand why it's, well, I do understand why it's not getting through. It's not getting through because there's push from above.
6: Right,
0: right. Hey, Senator. You know, I've I've got to throw in here. We get we get letters and calls and things, and you hear it. We all hear it from folks who are not crazy necessarily about the governor's approach on this, and that they feel like you know she's laying out a lot of blame on people, blaming restaurants, blaming retailers, blaming you know all kinds of folks about how this is actually going down. But for a lot of folks I'm talking to, they don't hear enough about her accepting enough blame. That's a tough word, but accepting enough responsibility, perhaps for not getting a message out there a lot you know, wider, deeper, more well-understood.
4: How much is she at, at fault on this? I, I think that because nobody really knows what we need to be doing mm-hmm. is that every governor, including ours, is grabbing or grasping at any straw, any suggestion that will really make a difference. I mean, yeah, it seemed to me that we were awfully strict on the restaurants because they, within their association, had come up with ways that they could uh, provide service, but protect both their employees and their customers. In Fact just those were the standards that have been pretty much implemented to uh, to op- allow them to open it all. So I think each industry has a better idea than perhaps, people in Santa Fe or else city or wherever is to make recommendations. And I think for a while, uh, the governor's office wasn't in in the departments and whatnot. We're not working as closely with the industry specific industries. Mm -hmm. That's where I kind of fault her a bit. Then once she started doing that, once they started doing it, then like with the restaurant association, since they were so front and center, it started working, and and I've gone a couple times to restaurants where w- the last time I got to sit inside, but the first uh, three t- two times I sat out in a in a tent area and it was wonderful. But it gave me a feeling of freedom that I had not had, and like everybody else, I be- have been getting claustrophobic. I feel like I'm not accomplishing anything. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so I think that. So far as blame, I don't blame her for doing what she thinks is right Mm -hmm. and what her experts are telling her. Mm -hmm. What I think is for your expert, I've got an expert that will tell you something different. And so I think we're struggling, you know, like I heard uh, the governor of South Dakota yesterday and they've done a remarkable job up there, and they've done bare minimum kinds of things. But then you look at the the territory and you go, well, maybe they don't have enough people that are exposing, getting around each other. So I, I would say I, that guess, might
0: be up to a little bit of dispute about South Dakota about how well they're doing, considering the. Well,
4: their, true, their numbers have been there, a little clunky up there. It's who's telling me the numbers and who's telling me the numbers.
0: Right. Right. So, surge, I, 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 I got to get Serge in here. We're just getting a little short on time. Yeah. Sorry about that. Serge, we got to get in this idea of jails and prisons and what's going on here. The Metro Detention Center had a big Mm -hmm. spike. We've got, uh, you know, immigration centers we got to throw in there as well. This Mm -hmm. is a tough one for the governor or any Mm -hmm. governor, as TJ mentioned, because the idea of letting people out of prison for any reason drives a lot of people crazy. And if you throw in, well, it's going to be safer for all of us for COVID. A lot of folks don't quite. CAN PUT THAT TOGETHER AND UNDERSTAND HOW THAT WORKS. WHAT'S THE GOVERNOR SUPPOSED TO DO ABOUT THE JAIL AND PRISON POPULATION?
3: WELL, I MEAN, YOU KNOW, FIRST WE HAVE TO ACCEPT THAT, ACKNOWLEDGE, SHE DOESN'T REALLY HAVE THAT MUCH CONTROL OVER, over THOSE SORTS OF THINGS. BUT
7: mm-hmm.
3: um, THOSE WHO DO, AND SHE CAN CERTAINLY INFLUENCE, RIGHT? I MEAN, IT IS JUST VERY CLEAR THAT JAILS ARE, ESPECIALLY JAILS, RIGHT? PRISONS HAVE A LITTLE BIT MORE CONTROL OVER WHO COMES IN AND WHO COMES OUT. Mm-hmm. Um, BUT OUR JAILS ARE, YOU KNOW, THEY'RE, Transi- have a very transient population, and w- one of the key things to just keep that from happening is to reduce the number of folks who are getting arrested or you know processed for for lesser violations, and to really just embrace the idea that you know what we do not need to be rotating people in and out of a place where they don't have control over their movements, where people are crowded together, where we don't know who's who, who's been where and been exposed to what, and. And it just really requires an, a, doing some math and saying, do we prefer to have people, you know, locked up for shoplifting, or do we want to have them, you know, less have less chance of them being exposed and propagating this in the community, right? And where you draw the line is is an open question. But right. I think it definitely we need to revisit those sorts of rates of processing people and incarcerating them. Mm -hmm. And TJ, you know, to continue with this, it's,
0: again, it's a difficulty. Trespassing, why does someone need to be in jail? In my understanding, APD has marching orders that says, look, let's not bring in people who have warrants for small things, they have misdemeanors, they have whatever the case may be. But politically, that is an awfully tough thing to do, isn't it?
5: I was just going to say that. I mean, that's yeah, mm-hmm. that was my answer to, uh, to Serge, Was the, the fact that in this political climate, and uh, and looking at the uh, crime statistics for Albuquerque and for New Mexico, I don't think you're going to find much popular support for uh, for doing that for for mm-hmm. doing it that way. I think the I think the problem is going to have to be solved um, by figuring out how to isolate people who have the virus. Um, somehow, who are incarcerated. I, I don't have the answer to that. Mm-hmm. But uh, truly, I think politically, I don't think you're gonna see that happen. I think you're gonna still see people get arrested. Um, I mean, just looking at this realistically, I, 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 right now, I don't see that happening.
0: Right, I hear you. We'll have plenty more to talk about in the coming weeks and months for sure. We'll have to leave our COVID conversation there. This group look at, looks at what's next for Santa Fe after activists yanked down the controversial Plaza Obelisk last week.
2: All right, next up on the show is a difficult conversation under the best of times, but it's obviously something that is on the top of a lot of people's minds in the middle of a pandemic. And that is how to plan for your death. Uh, And again, not a fun conversation by any means, but it's an important one, not only for yourself, but for your family and your loved ones. Uh, It's always traumatic. When someone passes unexpectedly, especially, and no one really knows what their wishes were uh, about their memorials, uh, what happens to their estate, all those kinds of difficult questions, it can put family at each other's throats. It can have a huge emotional toll. And so we sit down with Gail Rubin, who has dedicated her life and her career to this topic and helping people plan now for that inevitability. And next week is the Before I Die conference that she hosts, which, of course, this year in the pandemic is now primarily going virtual. She sits down with Megan Kamrick, our correspondent, to talk about that conference, as well as why some of these issues are so important and so top of mind right now.
0: COVID-19 has forced many of us to reckon with death. Whether it's our own, the deaths of those we love, or the overwhelming death toll of complete strangers. We're not good at talking about dying. Changing that is something Gail Rubin has made her life's work. NMIF correspondent Megan Kamrick talked to Ms. Rubin this week about an upcoming online event designed to get people talking about death.
8: Gail, thanks for joining us. The Before I Die Festival is an extension of your ongoing work to get people to talk openly about death, about what they want for their lives before they die, and to think about their wishes for the end of their lives. How do you see this year of COVID reinforcing your message?
7: In the news, all we are seeing is sickness counts and death counts. So mortality issues are really becoming top of mind awareness. Whereas generally, as we're going about our lives, we're, we're trying to pretend that we're not going to die. But in fact, we do have a 100% mortality rate. So acknowledging that we are going to die and planning ahead for how we might want to be treated should we become seriously ill and uh, planning ahead for what our disposition preferences are and talking to our loved ones about it is becoming, I'm hoping, a little more socially acceptable. There's such a a taboo about discussing death, but I've been doing this for 10 years now, and my motto is just like talking about sex won't make you pregnant, talking about funerals and end-of-life issues won't make you dead.
8: (laughs) You've been in this world for quite a while. What kinds of shifts are you seeing in how people plan funerals, how they think about end-of-life issues?
7: Well, with COVID, we're definitely having a huge impact on the funeral business. We have to be socially distant. Funeral homes have been offering video streaming of services, either in their chapels or even at graveside. The cremation rate here in New Mexico is close to 75%. So a lot of people are choosing cremation and the... COVID epidemic pandemic is actually accelerating that choice as people are finding, hmm. oh my God, we have, to, we have to do something with our loved one who has died. And very often, many of them are choosing cremation, but it hasn't necessarily been discussed as, is that the choice that that person would have wanted to make? That's why it's so important to plan ahead uh, to figure out what this costs, it's a consumer issue as well as just something we all have to deal with. So if you haven't talked about what you might want or made arrangements to purchase a burial spot, if you want to be buried, these are very important elements that if, God forbid, somebody just ups and dies and nobody, no plans are in place, that's going to put your loved ones in in a world of hurt.
8: I lost my own mother recently and like thousands of others this year, we have delayed a full funeral or celebration of life Mm -hmm. until Mm -hmm. our family can all travel safely. But I see that one of the sessions in the Before I Die Festival is all about holding virtual memorial services. What what are these and how are they evolving in the pandemic?
7: Yes, so, like we're doing today, uh, many memorial services and gatherings are are being held on Zoom. So uh, we have uh, Mandy from Keeper. Uh, She is, uh, her grandmother actually died earlier this year due to COVID and as part of what she does with online memorialization, she was able to pull together photographs and stories from families just like what you would do with an in-person memorial service, but given the, the issues with travel and getting together physically close to people, there are ways that we can make that online memorial service meaningful and moving and satisfying. Um, there's, there's certainly a lot of discontent at the fact that we can't hug our loved ones and be there close to them. Um, frankly, I don't want to get on an airplane anytime soon. Um, so kudos to you for for being able to you know be a part of uh, your mother's memorial service. And I am so sorry for your loss.
8: Oh, thank you. Well, we had a small sort of thing, but you know, the larger one, who knows? But you're also you're offering very practical information, such as why you need an advanced health care directive and issues around medical aid and dying, which I believe is an issue that's going to come up again in the legislative session in January. Yes,
7: yes. Um, Representative Debbie Armstrong is going to be carrying the uh, Elizabeth, well, it was called the Elizabeth Whitefield End of Life Act, I believe, the last time. Uh, And the whole idea of If you are diagnosed with a terminal illness, if you're on hospice, if you're eligible for hospice and you're afraid of a rough ending, um, the Medical Aid in Dying Act would give you the opportunity to be able to have medication that can help ease into death. It is not physician suicide. It is medical aid in dying.
8: There's also a session on managing our loved ones' possessions before and after they die. I just went through this with several of my sisters after my mother passed. Why is it important to actually
7: make plans around this? Well, you know, you can have a lot of conflict over objects that are imbued with emotional meaning, and so it's important to downsize while you're alive. Uh, and share those family heirlooms and maybe distribute those that can help reduce conflict. But uh, yes, that panel is going to be very interesting because we've got four people who have written three books between them about different ways of managing our loved ones' possessions. We also have a woman with estate pros here in New Mexico, Karen Hyatt, who's going to, that's her business is helping people manage the estates of loved ones who are either going downsizing to a smaller living arrangement. Maybe they're sick. Maybe they've died. And yeah, you've got all this stuff. You don't know the value of objects, which could be very valuable. Or maybe you think something's very valuable that actually isn't worth very much at all. So it's important to go through your stuff stuff and uh, literally pare it down and, and um, pass along those, those items that have meaning. This
8: festival is always timed to coincide with Dia de Muertos. It's a, it's a lovely tradition. Families visit cemeteries, they build ofrendas or altars with pictures of loved ones, maybe put things they enjoyed during their lifetime. The idea is this one time of year our departed loved ones are closer to us, perhaps visiting us. And it's such a different conception of what death is than mainstream Western or American culture. How is your festival evoking some of these ideas?
7: Well, in fact, we we do have a video on our festival website beforeidienm.com that tells you how to build an offrenda, one of uh, the funeral directors with uh, Daniels, um, his brother died actually 20 years ago. And we recorded a video with him showing how he puts together the ofrenda every year that honors his brother. So uh, to, to actually welcome the spirits of our deceased loved ones back, the, it would start Halloween, actually, when the veil between the worlds is the thinnest. And um, by setting up these photos and objects that our loved ones liked or loved in this lifetime, uh, it's a wonderful time to um, stay connected with our loved ones. You know, so often in the grieving process, people might say, oh, you know, you're processing your grief and you'll move beyond it. No, our connections with our loved ones continue even after They've left their bodies, and this idea of Dia de los Muertos, where we welcome them for a visit, and in fact, as the doyen of death, I actually welcome my loved ones back on the anniversary of their death. Something you might consider doing is setting up their photo and lighting a 24-hour candle. Uh, In the Jewish tradition, it's called a yard site. Uh, yeah. where we uh, recognize a special anniversary or the anniversary of the death or their birthday. Anytime you want to just specially connect with our loved ones, you can do that by lighting that candle and, and uh, sharing their photo. So it, it really is, it's, we're not going beyond our relationship with that loved one. We're extending it and celebrating it.
8: Gail, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. It's always enjoyable to talk with you. It's always so interesting. Thanks a lot.
7: Thank you, Megan.
2: Have you voted yet? That's the question a lot of folks are asking these days. And for a lot of people, the answer is yes, they have. We are headed towards some shattering numbers in terms of election Uh, early voting participation, whether that's in person or through absentee ballots, which a lot of folks are using because, of of course, COVID-19. And the days are ticking down, and so we wanted to get a better handle on exactly how the process works. So we uh, called up Maggie Toulouse-Oliver, our Secretary of State, to get an idea of exactly what folks can expect if they're especially using absentee ballots. We also wanted to find out what the process will be for counting those and when she thinks we'll actually have some election results after the official polls close on November 3rd at 7 p.m. or once the last people in line get a chance to cast their ballot. Here now, Senior Producer Matt Grubbs and Secretary of State Maggie (laughs) Toulouse-Oliver.
6: Secretary of State Maggie Toulouse-Oliver, we want to thank you for taking some time with us. Uh, A very busy afternoon. One of the first things we want to get to is absentee ballots. Um, It is too late now to request an absentee ballot. Is that right?
1: That is right. The deadline was Tuesday the 20th.
6: Okay, Um, so what what are the options for people who have absentee ballots either on the way or in their hands?
1: sure well uh obviously the the first way is to mail it back um we do recommend that folks Please do not put that ballot in the mail after uh, next Tuesday, October 27th. We want to give the Postal Service a full week to make sure that your ballot gets back to your county clerk's office. So if you wait until after that date or if you just feel more comfortable dropping your ballot off, you can do so at any polling location throughout the state all the way through the early voting period and on election day. Just make sure it's a polling place in your county.
6: And do you have to let them know that this is an absentee ballot that you're dropping off? And is there a separate line for that? Or is it everybody in one line?
1: Well, all the county clerks know that you can drop an absentee ballot uh, when you do get there. If there is just a single line, uh, see if you can flag a poll worker for their attention to to assist you in dropping off the absentee ballot. But most polling places across the state are going to have a separate line or even a drop box stationed right outside your polling place that you can simply walk it up and drop it off with a, a couple of poll officials right there to help you.
6: There are uh, other options, uh, it sounds like, as well. First, I want to ask, do we have any sort of um, any other drop boxes in in areas around uh, the county, places outside of restaurants, community centers, um, any of that going on?
1: Not, not for this election, Matt. Um, that is something that we are building the infrastructure for going into elections uh, starting next year. So for this year's uh, general election, the only drop boxes you are going to see are going to be directly correlated with a polling place.
6: Okay, that's a great rule of thumb. So people, um, I know we've seen in, in California, for example, some unofficial drop boxes that cause problems. <laughs> Um if, if I have my absentee ballot and I just am a little bit nervous about the timing, I'm, I'm unsure about how to fill it out. I know you've produced a video that people can watch and I've seen that. It's really helpful. Um, you can also just go to a polling place and vote. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, uh, of course, you know, we want to encourage folks if you've applied for and received an absentee ballot to just go ahead and vote that ballot. If you have questions as you're going through the process, you know, just pick up the phone and call your county clerk or or call our office at 505-827-3600. But if at the end of the day, you just you have to go and vote in person for whatever reason. I mean, let's say, for example, you spill coffee all over your ballot or you never get that ballot in the mail. Um, You can absolutely go to any early voting location all the way up through the end of the early voting period. Ask for a replacement absentee ballot. They will give you one that you can vote right there on the spot.
6: Okay, so there are some backups. It sounds like the simplest solution is usually the best. If you've got this ballot, you should try to use it if you can
1: yeah yeah it'll just you know keep keep the administrative uh challenges to a minimum keep the lines a little bit shorter keep a few uh more people out of the polling place as we're trying to maintain COVID safe practices for you to just you know vote and drop that ballot off or put it back in the mail but again you do have that option to go in person and and get a replacement if that's something you need to do
6: As we've seen some of the national conversation happen uh, around security of elections, a lot of it is not based in fact, but people are getting worried. Um, Are the numbers that you're seeing in terms of returned ballots versus requested ballots, do you think that those reflect people who have uh, chosen to just go vote in person?
1: We certainly do have a number of people who have chosen to just go vote in person for a variety of reasons. Um, we we were chatting a little bit before the show, and I mentioned that I, I've noticed people around the state and around the country really thinking strategically about how to vote. Um, you know, we, we're hearing concerns, particularly from states like Michigan and Pennsylvania, that have to wait until late in the game to start counting those ballots. Uh, you know, that you know they're worried the same thing might happen here. It might take a really long time to count those absentee ballots and and to get results on election night so they're thinking well maybe it's better if I you know go ahead and and go vote early in person or or maybe I'm worried about the post office Um, but generally speaking you know I think it's really important for New Mexicans to know that no matter how you choose to cast your ballot you're going to be able to do it in a safe and secure way we're working closely with the postal service we are tracking every ballot so we know where they are at any given time we are working uh, of course diligently and, and the county clerks are working so hard and poll officials to keep those polling places, uh, you know, clean and well maintained and and practicing social distancing, following all all those COVID safe practices. So really, it's up to you as the voter. You know, what do you feel more comfortable doing? Uh, you know, do you feel comfortable getting out of your house, going to cast a ballot, or would you rather just you know put it back in the mail?
6: When county clerks start to get absentee ballots back, what is the process for counting them? When can they begin and What does that look like in terms of just registering that they've received them versus actually counting them?
1: Sure. Well, as, as you know, Matt, uh, ballots are already coming back to our clerk's offices and the county clerks and their staff are already going through the very first step of the process, which is to receive them back and check to make sure there is a signature and the correct last four digits of the social security number. If they are finding any of that information missing or incorrect, they are notifying the voter within 24 hours that there's an issue that needs to be resolved, providing them with an affidavit and a way to provide that information back to the clerk so the ballot can be counted. The next step of the process is convening the absentee precinct board in every county. That will start as early as this coming Saturday, the 24th, as late as uh, Thursday, the 29th, um, depending on the size of the county and how many ballots they've mailed out. Those boards can begin that multi-step process then at that point of First of all, double checking uh, that there's a signature and a last four of a social, opening the outer envelope, removing the outer from the inner envelope, and then et cetera, et cetera, up to and including beginning to feed those ballots through the tabulator. So here in New Mexico, our big counties are going to have a 10-day head start on the counting process, and our smaller ones have a five-day head start. So we feel good that the clerks around the state are planning to take advantage of that and, and really get going on this process as soon as possible.
6: I wanna key in on the, the tabulating part. Um, so they're actually feeding these into the machines uh, that are like the ones you and I would do if we voted in person?
1: They're a little bit different. Uh, They basically look like a computer and a scanner, and we have these high-speed scanners available to the bigger counties that they can utilize to process more ballots more quickly. Some of the smaller counties will use the same exact type of tabulating machine that you would see uh, in a polling place. And again, it just depends on how many, how big you are and how many ballots you have. But yes, uh, they can begin feeding those ballots through those counting machines. And it's just like if you're voting in early voting or on Election Day, as the ballots go in, the machine is tallying results, but those results won't be made available until uh, the process is completed. And so, you know, just like when you close the polls on election night, then you produce results. Same thing with our absentee process.
6: Secretary of State Maggie Toulouse-Oliver, I'm sure we'll check in with you um, either shortly before or shortly after the vote. Thanks so much.
4: Thank you.
2: Let's head right back to the Line Opinion Roundtable now. Uh, We're going to pick up a conversation we had last week on the show. That is the tearing down of the obelisk in the Santa Fe Plaza, just one example of the countless monuments, statues that have become a focal point for civil unrest um, and uh, just lots of discussions about what we memorialize, how we memorialize these things, The obelisk was originally erected to uh, represent the soldiers in the Civil War and later included the word savages. And uh, back in the 70s, I believe it was, someone snuck in and actually scratched out the savages reference. Uh, And a plaque, as you're going to hear, was even temporarily erected there to explain that situation. But that plaque was later stolen. This is, again, a focal point for a lot of uh, unrest in Santa Fe, but it's also a flashpoint for these sorts of symbols that we have all across New Mexico. And here in New Mexico, often it has to do also with uh, Spanish conquistadors and um, stories in history that point out the racial division and uh, inequality that's inherent in our history. Uh, Santa Fe Mayor Alan Weber says he's moving forward with creating a commission to look at what the long-term solution is. He also admitted that he acted not quickly enough uh, to the initial complaints uh, in the wake of the killing of George Floyd uh, to take down the obelisk now. And because of that, protesters did that and made that decision for him. So we're going to find out a little bit about what the line folks think about, uh, again, these monuments and also what needs to happen to start the healing process
0: santa fe's plaza obelisk is no more after activists yanked it down on indigenous people's day the civil war era monument ostensibly honored soldiers but an inscription that referred to native americans as quote savage end quote and honored the soldiers who fought against them made it a focal point mayor alan weber says he screwed up claiming he was too focused on creating the perfect potential dialogue about the obelisk as as opposed to actually doing something about it as tension simmered all summer. And TJ, I want to get uh, your sense of where the mayor is now. You know, he had a, uh, Santa Fe, New Mexican, had a good piece quoting him saying, look, let's start to get after this. We should have had this dialogue, you know, earlier. Let's get it going. How can he make up ground now that the the darn thing is on the ground, meaning meaning the obelisk itself?
5: This issue is just so unbelievably complicated. Mm-hmm. I'm going to quote UNM uh, history professor Paul Andrew Hutton, which we have on the show every once in a while. And, he, and uh, one of the things, uh, the obelisk or about Onyate, uh, I, I said, uh, Paul, I mean, these, these, he was a pretty bad dude. And uh, he says, TJ, back then, everybody was a bad dude. And this does not make things right. I think the country right now is going through a catharsis. Uh, I think we went through a guitarist back in the 60s and uh, we, we people were in the streets doing the same things and uh, we, you know, it was bad, but then it got better. I think the same thing is going on now. I think it's like a move towards enlightenment. I mm. think we're really questioning our values, questioning our ideals. We're questioning everything right now. And um, I don't know where this is going to land yet. I don't think the mayor of Santa Fe knows where this is going to land yet. Right. What am I, one one? Observation about the obelisk. When I moved here years and years and years ago uh, from uh, from, out from the Midwest, um, went to Santa Fe as a tourist, and I looked at the obelisk. I said, "Oh my God, look at that! Look at that!" The word "savage" was uh, was uh, was scratched out of there. Right. And I and you know I tell you what that did. It caused me personally to think and co- "Okay, why was the word savage cras- uh, scratched out of there? What caused that to be done?" So. My question is, yeah, maybe ultimately, maybe these things should be torn down. But yet, what would have have happened if we would have kept that obelisk up with the word scratched out and then put some kind of a plaque in front of it explaining what happened, why this obelisk was put up, why the word savage was was, was scratched out there, and Mm -hmm. let people talk about it? because I think it really did. It made me at the time say, oh my God, look at that. There, were, there was social injustice back then in this country and there still is now.
0: You know, I gotta agree with you. When I first moved here, I had literally the same exact experience you just described looking at the obelisk and the scratched Word out savage. I had the same, it's funny you just said put it that way. It's very interesting. And Serge, let me spin to you on this idea. A lot of folks, you know, we hear the phrase, we, don't, we can't remove history, removing statues removes history, all that kind of a thing. But if the mayor wants to get something going here, is everything on the table? Should the obelisk perhaps be moved as has been proposed in years past, actually? You know, should the plaque say something else altogether? What's the best way to move forward with it instead of just putting up the same obelisk that we had last time
3: around? Right. Well, I think that's the one option that should not be on the table. But I do want to just respond a little bit. It's my understanding that at some point they actually did put up some sort of plaque or sign and it was summarily stolen. Yes. Um, and so so it would have to be, I guess, bolted in better if it were done in the future. But, you know, I'm, I'm not very uh, receptive to this idea that this is our history and it generates conversation, right? I mean, especially in this case, this was literally on a pedestal in the single most prominent place in Santa Fe, a, monument, you know, to violence done against the original inhabitants of this land. right? It could not have a more serious stamp of official approval, but you know, just by virtue of its place and its its sort of prominence. Um, you know, monuments, statues, they don't need to live forever. And th- i I'm one hundred percent confident that you know this statue, it's not the last vestige, the last thing to remind us of the long history of oppression uh, of the Native folks in our state. We have a systemic, educational, economic, you know, inequities that are going to be with us for a while. Um, this this uh, monument is not what is needed to have that conversation. We have examples of that constantly around us in our state. Um, and so I think you know, treating it as anything other than a monument to violence and a, an official sort of approval of it is is a mistake. I'm you know we can disagree about the the means of that it was removed, but I can't believe anyone would argue that it, you know, celebrates oppression, celebrates um, things that we no longer want to celebrate mm-hmm. and should not be. You know, put it fine. Put it in some part of town where people can go and interpret it historically. But to have it where it was or anything like that is a mistake and sends a message that I'm not comfortable with. Hey, you up know, for a, a second? second, do you mind? Yeah, real quick. Uh, don't get me wrong.
5: I mean, I, I I think what they should do is they should do what you just said. I think what they should do is replace it with something much more inclusive. And, right. I mean, that that's the way things are going right now. I think that's what needs to be done. Um, Uh, One thing about that statue is, and and, and granted, you're right, it it, it represented to many, many people oppression, uh, racism, and and savagery on our part. Uh, Yet it also represented the uh, the Union uh, Army also defeating the Confederacy. So it, it, it sent a mixed message. Yeah. And I think that's part of the problem here. The obelisk
0: really perhaps tried to stand for too many things at once, Senator. You know, when I when you read back over the history, the Albuquerque General North had a great piece kind of detailing I didn't realize in 73 Santa Fe City Council unanimously approved a resolution for the complete removal of the obelisk. I mean this thing has been a controversy forever. And so there's starting to be let me kind of put together some of the things TJ and, and Serge are saying here. there's starting to be a a feeling like, okay, why don't we move in the other way? Why don't we have a lot more statues? Why don't we have Popeye? Why don't we have all different folks who have been impactful in Santa Fe's arc of history and just really go the other way and get after it, make it a a statue area in in some park somewhere? I mean, who knows? But how does that strike you? Instead of just hyper-focusing on the obelisk, let's
4: open this thing up if we really want to have some dialogue here. Uh, two things. One is in disclaimer. I am a student of the Civil War and Reconstruction. So to take down a statue that commends the uh, Union Army who fought the Confederates and won in New Mexico, we only had a couple battles. battles. And that was, by the way, the original intent of the people putting up the obelisk. But when they started discussing it, they decided to add in about Native Americans. It was not the original impetus for the obelisk. That's right. And they put it in the place, they wanted to honor these people, uh, talking about the Union Army. They wanted to honor them and thank them. So of course, and you think about it, is there wasn't much of Santa Fe, but the plaza in those days. So it became the place of honor. And that's why I believe it, it was chosen. Um, one of the suggestions I saw was uh, to move it to one of the battlefields. Well, that makes sense to me. Sure. That's a good place for it. And people do visit those. Um, and, and I probably shouldn't say this on TV, but there are some of the, uh, and they may have been moved, but some of the cannons that were recovered down at Old Town Albuquerque were Confederate can cannons that were left as the Confederate army moved out of New Mexico mm-hmm. after having been defeated. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I'm i a student of history and I'm sorry, but I think we shouldn't get rid of the things that represent our history. I like the idea of adding additional statues. So the, like you go from one to here to here right. and you get an overall story of the history that occurred in our state. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, I I, just feel like, I mean, people don't even know that most of the people and you see them all interviewed on TV and stuff. They don't even know the difference in the three separate areas of government. They don't even know what the Supreme <laughs> Court is That's or what point. it's doing. But yep. if we're tourists, we spend or are or, or looking at things like that. If it's put in our faces, that's right. We look at things and we learn more. That's right. So I think it is. And that an that opp- is the opportunity,
0: a, isn't it? That, that, yes, to that we have step. here right.
4: to do something to teach our history—the
0: right. good
4: and the bad and the awful.
0: There you go. So, we're back in a few minutes to talk about Operation Legend here in Albuquerque: real success or just a PR stunt?
2: All right, and we head back to the line table one more time this week. Before we do, want to make you aware of some other things this week. You can hear more from the line panelists on our Facebook or YouTube page at New Mexico in Focus, where we do our warm-up segment, One More Thing. The folks talked about some of the other big stories of the week that caught their eye, some really interesting things to pay attention to from Diane Snyder about the Santa Fe Opera. Some exciting announcements this week. That was a lot of fun to talk about. Also, on Friday, today, Gene Grant sat down with some of the folks at the center of the new weekly newspaper here for the Albuquerque market. You may remember that the weekly alibi closed up shop not too long ago, and there is a new paper in the works that is called The Paper. And we wanted to find out what their plans are. Uh, Again, A lot of the heart of a city can be uh, explained or exhibited in a vibrant weekly newspaper, Uh, culture, lifestyle, all those great things. And so we wanted to see what they are planning. Of course, they're building this as they go, but uh, we sit down with the editor and one of the other contributors, Gene Grant, talks to them about what they plan to be doing in the coming weeks and months as they look to fill that hole that was left behind by the alibi. So encourage you to go to YouTube or Facebook there as well and to check out that conversation. It's a really interesting one. They got some interesting things in the works there for sure. Here on the line now, we are going to talk about uh, the fact that U.S. Attorney General William Barr was in town recently touting the success of Operation Legend. You probably remember that name. This was... Uh, the name given by uh, the Trump administration to this federal effort to come into crime-ridden cities and to help crack down and make arrests and help local law enforcement to get these situations under control. Maybe most famously, though, uh, was what happened with Operation Legend in Portland, where it seemed like um, there were... Officers who were not identified and that they weren't necessarily coordinating as well as folks would like with local law enforcement. And so it really aggravated and exacerbated a lot of the riots and protesting that happened there in Portland. And so there were concerns of a similar sort of an impact here when these federal officers came into town in Albuquerque. Um, Attorney General Barr, obviously, not surprisingly, talked about what a success it has been so far and he was in town again to make that announcement and so we wanted to break that down a little bit and see what actually the Operation Legend uh, did accomplish and whether or not it was a success or just a successful PR maneuver. So here now, Gene Grant and the line panelists.
0: In ALBUQUERQUE THIS YEAR, PRESIDENT TRUMP SENT DOZENS OF FEDERAL AGENTS TO HELP LOCAL LAW ENFORCEMENT CRACK DOWN ON VIOLENT CRIME HERE. LAST WEEK, ONE OF HIS STAUNCHEST DEFENDERS, BOTH FIGURATIVELY AND LITERALLY. ATTORNEY GENERAL BILL BARR CAME TO TOWN TO TOUT OPERATION LEGEND. AND SENATOR uh, SNYDER, YOU'VE SAID BEFORE THAT THIS FELT LIKE A GOOD IDEA TO YOU. WHAT DO YOU MAKE OF THE efforts SO FAR? WE'VE GOT 113 PEOPLE ARRESTED ON FEDERAL CHARGES, 47 CHARGED WITH NARCOTICS-RELATED OFFENSES, 56 WITH FIREARMS-RELATED OFFENSES, 10 with other violent crimes, would you call it a success?
4: I think it's certainly a big step in the right direction. One of the things that um, needs to be pointed out is Albuquerque in the past has worked with the federal law enforcement on numerous things because of our border, because of just the uniqueness of where we're placed geographically. But to be able, one of the points that I think is so important is, and I noticed you differentiated, which is good, the 113 federal arrest on federal law statute is some federal laws are much tougher. You and, and we and they have them that can be used like uh, racketeering, drug drug kinds of things that we don't have at the state level. So uh, um, a recurring cr- a criminal can be arrested on those federal statutes instead of waiting and having to wait for a state statute.
0: Let me jump in yeah. uh, with that on um, surge here real quick. I mean, uh, obviously yeah. defense attorneys aren't crazy about this idea. If you get, if you're following where the Certainly. Senator was, yeah. what's, what's your sense of that about, you know, the the stiffer sentencing guidelines for federal stuff?
3: Yeah, right. I mean, and this is where I have some issues with, with sort of the whole conceit of this, which is the idea that, you know, first of all, that somehow that Albuquerque is this lawless chaotic you know, land but also that the solution is the carceral state, and that more police, more stiffer stiffer punishments, um, more law enforcement is the solution uh, to this problem that I'm not convinced that we actually have, Um, and spins this narrative that this place was out of control, but we've come in and, and done this because we have stiffer charges and no parole and whatnot. Um, you know, less, fewer guns on the street, love it. Less violence, love it. This idea that the solution to all our problems is more police, not a fan.
0: Hey, T.J., Bill Barr was also politicking a bit while he was here. Let me read you a quote. I thought this was kind of interesting. Quote, if you want to be safe, if you're tired of the blood and mayhem on the street, you have to start paying attention to who you vote for to retain as judges, to who you make district attorney, to who you make mayor. I'm saying this across the board, not just the people of Albuquerque, but he was sitting in Albuquerque as he said it, so I'm going to assume he's talking to the people of Albuquerque. Um, what's, your, what's your sense of that? I mean, you know, we, I hear this on your radio show a lot, folks complaining about the revolving door of, of our, our judicial system. Is Mr. Barr right to stick his nose in politics here in Albuquerque? Uh, well,
5: let's put it this way. I'm going I'm, I'm to answer this in a political way, That mm-hmm. like politicians, First off, if you, a year ago, we were begging for help because we knew we had a problem. Fair enough. And um, I think um, some of us who have lived here a long time really live in a bubble because one of the things, Serge, you said this, and, and no offense, but uh, we, we, do have a, we do have a crime problem here. Now. We have a big crime problem. One of the, right before I moved here, people said, oh, you're moving back to Albuquerque, but what about the crime? This is like 2,000 miles away. We have a problem here. Um, Bill Barr being here this year was an obvious political move. It's a political move. Uh, there's no doubt about that. Uh, whether he should stick his nose into our politics here and into, into, our, into our crime. Now I'll tell you what, at this point, anybody who wants to give us any, any amount of help, to fight crime here in this town. That's fine. Whether it needs more police, whether it needs more social programs, uh, we obviously have a problem here. We have a problem with drugs. We have a problem with gangs uh, that has not been addressed. We have a problem with poverty. We have a problem with joblessness. It all ties in together. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you attack first? I mean, the, the big obvious thing to attack first is we have violent crime here. Let's Let's stop the violent crime, and then let's talk about everything else.
0: Serge, on that point, I mean, folks would say openly, "All right, we're going to talk about this. Let's talk about education. Let's talk about opportunities. Let's talk about a decent living wage." There's about a half dozen things you can throw out there that would, that folks would say, "Well, that will lessen crime almost overnight." Uh, mm-hmm. Is it a priorities issue? Is that the problem here? I mean,
3: I think so. It's you know, we we spend all this money on on police and and our carceral state. Like I said, we're not focusing on my favorite issue, housing. Ah. right? And employment and wages, Yes. right? These sort of foundational things that create the kind of society we want. So, you know, I think it's it's a distraction. It's focusing the conversation in a way that lots of people respond to, and I get it. It's not unimportant, but it's not the whole enchilada, as they say.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: You know, Bill Barr, the attorney general, a uh, senator, uh, sort of
0: brushed by this idea of defunding the police. His idea is, no, you must invest more in law enforcement. Where do you come down on that side of it?
4: I very much believe that we, two things. One is I vehemently oppose defunding the police. Uh, The second thing is, uh, because we don't have enough here in, in Albuquerque. Everybody will say that. The second thing is that doesn't mean that I don't support funding the things we need to do, particularly in behavioral health, the kinds of systems, you don't take from, it's the old Rob Peter to pay Paul, that doesn't solve your problem. Right. You you need the police out doing their job, and then you need the funds for behavioral health, for for counseling, for uh, ho- the homeless. Because otherwise live.
0: you're just chasing your tail if you don't have all those That's pieces That's exactly in place. Right. right.
4: It's not one or the other, That's it right. should be both.
0: That's right. Guys, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. TJ, thank you so much for coming on. It's really been a a great favor. We've been so pleased to have you. And Serge, as always, love you over there at UNM Law Center. Thank you very much. Out of time. Thanks to you all.
2: Last up this week, we hope that you had a chance to watch our U.S. Senate debate last Sunday on New Mexico PBS. We had the three candidates for Senate: Democrat Ben Ray Lujan. Republican Mark Ronchetti, and Libertarian Bob Walsh all together to talk about some of the important issues in the race. But we wanted to give you a little sample of that to wet your whistle if you didn't see it. So we're going to give you a little excerpt from the conversation about the COVID-19 response uh, from the national level and the national point of view. Mark difference here between the candidates. We know you'll be able to pick that out, and we hope that this Uh, sampling and the full show helps to make you feel better informed as you head to the polls. Uh, And so if you want to watch the full show and haven't already, you can find that on our website at nmpbs.org. And just click on our election page, you'll find it right there, as well as our candidate conversation shows in the three congressional district races, as well as PBS NewsHour coverage, including this week's presidential debate, the second and last debate. So we encourage you to Go and check all that out as you do your best to prepare to do your civic duty at the polls. Here now are the candidates for the U.S. Senate.
9: This is an important question. Everyone that's tuning in tonight, everyone across New Mexico and across America, has been hit hard by COVID-19. We need to listen to the doctors, to the scientists, and to the public health experts. The estimates today from the CDC are that Over 219,000 people have lost their lives across America, nearly 1,000 in New Mexico alone. It's just wrong. And that's why there needs to be a national response to be able to stomp out COVID-19. President Trump has failed from the very beginning, and we now know because of tapes that were released from a conversation that he had, that he knew how bad this was back in January, and he continued to spread misinformation. He tried telling the American people that it would be gone after Easter, He said that the warm weather would take care of it, and he spread misinformation like it was let out from a lab. We need to make sure we listen to the scientists, the doctors, and the public health experts. It's out of control, and it's a serious threat, and it's taken too many lives already.
10: No question, Gene, this is very serious. I mean, there are more than 200,000 people dead in this country each day now in New Mexico. We're setting new records day over day for new infections. So there's no question, this is a huge problem here, and we need to do a few things. First of all, we need to follow the science. I think we can all agree on that. We need to mask up and social distance, but we also have to begin to target some help to people who so badly need it in this state, whether it be our small businesses which are struggling, whether it be employees who are just trying to make a paycheck week over week because of this pandemic. And I think the key in all of this is, we need another bill to come out of Congress and start to help the people of this state. But unfortunately, it's been politicized. And right now, Nancy Pelosi is sitting on a bill in the House and the Senate, and both sides are in this standoff. And it's got to stop. The congressman has a real role here. It can really help get this done. So we've got to stop the finger pointing. We've got to get some aid to the people who badly need it. Now, I realize in the House, they passed a bill, but that bill had a lot to do with a lot of other things and not COVID. Things like releasing violent criminals out of jail early and also giving tax breaks to millionaires and billionaires on the coast. Let's cut that out. Let's just give people what they need to get things going.
0: I've got a follow up for all three. I'll start with you, Mr. Ronchetti. Do you think we need another COVID relief package in Congress, why or why not? But what should this package focus on and was there enough oversight the first cares Act
10: look I, I give a lot of grace to what happened with the first cares act to everybody involved because everyone had to react very very quickly in this on both sides so I think both sides operated the best they could in the moment on the cares Act obviously there's been some fraud with the cares Act that should be pursued to the fullest extent of the law but I don't put that on any of our leaders at all but we do need another bill here and I think it should include a couple of things number one liability protection for businesses who are doing it the right way if you're masking up and social distancing you shouldn't have to worry about a frivolous lawsuit targeted aid to things like our hospitality and even our tourism industry here that needs it as well so some of these groups that didn't get any help definitely need the help as well and we need to make sure even people that are still struggling to make those payments get some help too gene because i think what we're looking at here is this continues to go on and on that's why it's so important that we get a bipartisan bill out and the fact that we've waited three months for that and there is no bill is unconscionable and i would ask the congressman why hasn't it happened
0: LET ME ASK THE CONGRESSMAN THAT VERY QUESTION, DO YOU THINK WE NEED ANOTHER COVID RELIEF PACKAGE BILL IN CONGRESS, BUT WHAT SHOULD IT LOOK LIKE, REPRESENTATIVE?
9: GENE, I'M GOING TO GET TO YOUR QUESTION, BUT THERE'S A FEW THINGS THAT MR. RONCHETTI SAID THAT ARE IMPORTANT TO POINT OUT. NUMBER ONE, WHEN MARK WAS ASKED DURING THE DEBATE ON MAY 19, 2020, KSVP, IF NEW MEXICO SHOULD GET MORE MONEY AND in HIS WORDS BAILED OUT, HIS ANSWER WAS NO. Pete Domenici and Manuel Lujan fought for every dollar for the state of New Mexico. And that's what I'm going to continue to do. And also Mark said we should follow the science. I agree with that. But Mark also said, and he went to Twitter just like President Trump and said, the state of New Mexico should open up just like Texas and Arizona while he continues to ignore wearing masks and has big events uh, throughout the state. We need to make sure we're standing up to that nonsense. Look, there needs to be another round of relief for the American people, direct payments of $1,200, small payments, Uh, like loans and grants that are going to help our our businesses in New Mexico um, with small and large grants and and loans as well. Support for our local hospitals, money to help our schools safely reopen, and that includes relief for the state of New Mexico, cities and counties. Did you know that police departments, 86% of the funding for police departments comes from local governments? That money is going to be needed for the uh, public health Long response. One minute, Mr. Luhan. Well, it's helping our fire departments.
10: Do you have something, Mr. Marketti? Well, no, I just I just, I just, just didn't hear an answer from Congressman Lujan. He but let me is you the, the you assistant speaker of the House. Give it 15 seconds, if you would. Just a uh, quick, he's the assistant speaker of the House. He can provide the aid that everybody needs. So instead of the misdirection about talking about things and mischaracterizing what I said, Congressman, you're right there with Nancy Pelosi. You can get her on the phone right now and get a deal done and help people in New Mexico. That's all I'm curious about. Can't we do that? Lujan, Chief, do you have a rebuttal?
9: You that? Look, Mark Ronchetti in his own Twitter feed said this is another seat for Donald Trump. This is not a seat for Donald Trump, Mark. The U.S. Senate seat in New Mexico is for New Mexicans, number one. You'd also be a rubber stamp for uh, Mr. Mitch McConnell. Mitch McConnell this week said he was not going to do this. Mitch McConnell has been absent from the negotiations. The leader of the Senate, Mark, it's an absolute disgrace to the American people we need the senate to take up this covid relief package rather than trying to push through that confirmation that they are and you know that
2: that about wraps it up for us this week but do want to give you a reminder about something else that is our new podcast project you're listening to this podcast so we know you like you like them and we've got a good one for you too it's called growing forward And it's all about the cannabis industry in New Mexico. Uh, We released a new episode this week that looks at how folks in the cannabis industry, right now, that would be the medical cannabis industry, uh, how they are trained and educated, and how that plays into a potential push towards recreation of or legalization of recreational use cannabis. Easy for me to say. Um, But uh, this is a a complicated thing. There's a lot of discussion in this week's episode about how folks with their medical cannabis card walk into a dispensary. They may not have the best idea in the world what it is they need for their conditions that they're trying to help mitigate or alleviate. And there may be some 18-year-old behind the counter who's charged with helping them walk through that process and find the best solution for them. Uh, It's almost like a pharmacy except for In that situation, with uh, those types of medications, it's a doctor who prescribes, and then the pharmacist just fills that prescription. And so it's a whole new world, as we're finding out with a lot of the cannabis world and the cannabis ecosystem. Uh, Growing Forward, it's available wherever you get your podcasts. We can also send you to our website again, nmpbs.org. Just look for the Growing Forward page. There's a link to it right on the homepage. And you can hear that new episode. You can also find out um, or listen back to all the prior episodes, and you can subscribe right from there as well. So I encourage you to check that out. That's a partnership between ourselves and correspondent Megan Kamrick, who you heard from earlier, as well as Andy Lyman of New Mexico Political Report. We're having a lot of fun making that. It's a fascinating topic. It's not often you're talking about starting a whole new industry from scratch and the challenges with that. And uh, it's just a lot of interesting questions that still have to be answered. And we're not that far away from the next legislative session when lawmakers will be trying to do that for sure. We know the governor's in favor of legalization. So no doubt if you're for it or against it, it will be talked about in the upcoming session. And we want to help get everybody up to speed and educated on all the complexities of it. So with that, we'll leave you with our uh, weekly Final thoughts from host Gene Grant as he wraps up the week that was. Have a terrific week. Everybody stay safe, stay healthy, and we will be back next Friday.
0: Good to read. Santa Fe Mayor Alan Weber is pressing ahead with his plans to form a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. In the aftermath of the Plaza Obelisk coming down on Indigenous Peoples Day, Now a quick bit of history here, the the original TRC or Truth and Reconciliation Commission was held in South Africa in the late 90s as a path forward following the long horrors of the apartheid system. It allowed both victims and perpetrators of apartheid to speak freely in a series of televised forums about their experiences. There were over a thousand hearings with many, many, many voices heard from. So here's the idea for Santa Fe. While waiting for Mr. Weber to form the commission, how about a website right now where Santa Feans can voice their opinion to upload for us all to see, to the point where many hundreds are heard from, a sharing of all perspectives. The task demands an overflow of opinions, but better yet to my mind, starting on a community driven platform will give the commission a credible launching point for any and all discussion. Thanks again for joining us and for staying informed and engaged. We'll see you again next week in focus.